Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. We have the latest on the foreign interference fiasco. A Canadian actor from The Mandalorian will join us. A newlywed couple celebrated their nuptials in a special way. Tired of sports betting ads? Who isn't? But they work. Learn how you can live independently at home for longer and catch the one-man mime show at the RBG. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. The Prime Minister says CSIS has now been directed to alert officials to threats regardless of whether they are considered credible. We're making it very, very clear to CSIS and all our intelligence officials that when there are concerns that talk specifically about any MP, particularly about their family, those need to be elevated even if CSIS doesn't feel that it's a sufficient level of concern for them to take more direct action. We still need to know about it uh, at the the, uh, upper government level. New development comes after China allegedly made threats against Conservative MP Michael Chong and his family members who live in Hong Kong. And the PM, for his part, says he only found out about it after um, two years of intelligence, I guess, gathering that, that CSIS had done and CSIS had received this information. Uh, but he only learned about it following an article in the Globe and Mail. As you can imagine, it has sparked even stronger calls, louder calls, for a public inquiry into foreign interference. Mackenzie Gray is a national reporter for Global News covering Parliament Hill and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Mackenzie, welcome back to the show. Good morning. So the PM says CSIS didn't tell anyone about information that it received that China had threatened family members of Mr. Chong who live in Hong Kong. It seems like there is a concerning disconnect between the government and this country's top security officials, no? (laughs) <laughs> Big time. And, uh, you know, in all the China stories and interference stories that we've been working on here at Global and our colleagues at the, at the Globe Mail as well who've uh, worked on the Michael Kong story, um, I don't think we've seen the prime minister come out like he did yesterday. And I don't want to say throw Jesus under the bus, but pretty, pretty clear that he was upset that he didn't know about what happened. You know, when we look back on the hand-on stories that we did, um, you know, he his office said that uh, he didn't know about a call between Mr. Dong and the Chinese Toronto Consulate, uh, Consular General, um, but did not come out and give the same kind of, you know, basically blow by blow that he did yesterday with Mr. Chong. Uh, obviously different stories uh, and different contexts for those, but uh, in both cases, uh, CSIS, you know, the Prime Minister's office and the Prime Minister have said CSIS did not tell him uh, about things that I would expect the Prime Minister, and he made it pretty clear yesterday, does want to know about. Uh, you know, and one one thing you said in your intro there, Rick, you know, the prime minister, uh, you know, I don't think that there's an issue about the, the credibility of the threats against Mr. Chong or or the threats going forward. You know, what CSIS has said when they've showed up at parliamentary committees to talk about this uh, and, and what they have, uh, you know, leaked out to other people when it comes in particular in the hand dong story uh, is they didn't share information because there was no, uh, you know, actionable intelligence or actionable evidence. Well, CSIS is operating in these circumstances, uh, it looks like, at a criminal standard. They're only going to pass things along uh, when there could be a crime that's committed. Uh, But they have not operated in the political and, uh, I would argue, moral standard about what happens in these situations. And that's exactly what happened, what looks to have happened in this case with Mr. Chong. Uh, And the question remains, you know, rarely do we see the prime minister come out and be uh, that openly frustrated and angry with a minister, a department, or something like that without there being consequences. Uh, I think we're going to start seeing calls from the opposition wondering uh, if they do accept the Prime Minister's uh, answer that he did not know about this, 
what is he going to do about it? And does he still have confidence in the head of CSIS if he didn't pass on such you know information that I think anyone listening would think should be something that should be passed on to higher up levels and to Mr. Chong in particular. This uh, foreign interference, I think, has played out perfectly for countries like China. I mean, this has been a masterstroke in upsetting the political apple cart here in Canada. And it begs the question, this this latest story, who knows, there might be other ones. It's got to be putting pressure on Special Rapporteur David Johnston to say, all right, I guess we got to do a public inquiry. Well, I think there was ample pressure before for him to say that. I think this just adds a little bit more a fuel to the fire. May 23rd is the date where he has to make the decision on that. You know, the argument we still hear from the Prime Minister is that, well, that's not the best venue to do this because there's a bunch of top-secret stuff that we can't share publicly. Um, and, you know, even a report that we would write on that uh, isn't going to be able to get to the bottom of things. You know, they point to this NSERA uh, committee that of parliamentarians um well, they get the briefings, but then they can't say anything about it. So there's no clarity with the public in terms of the stories that we've done at Global, the stories that Global Mail's done. Um, you know, I think the reason that this story is, is uh, you know, such a difficult one for the government, uh, a couple of reasons. One, it deals with Mr. Chong's family uh, and isn't kind of some of the more abstract concepts that we've reported on or, or um, the Globe has reported on before. Uh, but secondly, um, you know, a feel amongst parliamentarians, in particular, not just members of the Conservatives, but also the NDP as well, uh, Mr. Chong is extremely well respected. Uh, you know, there is no love right now in the Pierre Polyev era between the Conservatives and the Liberals, but Mr. Chong is a, is a holdout of that. He is not someone that uh, goes down into the same kind of levels that Mr. Polyev and, and you know, 90% of the caucus will go at this point in time. Uh, he is a very well-respected member of Parliament. And when he asked questions before on the China file, they were done in a serious, substantive manner. And generally, he received one of the few Conservatives to receive a serious and substantive answer back from the Prime Minister or the people when he asked questions. Um, and I think that's a part of why uh, it's hitting so hard. And a part of the reason why we've seen the Prime Minister kind of come out and, and uh, be the most transparent and forthcoming he has been on any of the China stories so far. Interesting stuff. I'm sure this is going to be a, um, a top-of-the-agenda item at the National Liberal Convention, which opens today and runs till Saturday. Uh, Mackenzie, appreciate your time today, and thanks for covering this story for us. Thanks. That's Mackenzie Gray, national reporter for Global News, covering Parliament Hill. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. May the 4th be with you. You're going to hear that phrase a few times today, I'm sure, as Star Wars fans around the world celebrate the ever-growing universe that George Lucas created so many moons ago. Of course, from the original movie to really dozens of spin-offs, Star Wars has entertained audiences uh, both young and old for decades now. And our next guest is... Very much aware of not only the power of the Force and, of course, the dark side, but the fandom that comes with being involved with the Star Wars franchise. His name is Paul Sun Young Lee, a Canadian actor who has appeared in dozens of films and TV shows, including his role as Captain Carson Teva in The Mandalorian. Paul, welcome to Good Morning Hamilton. How are you? I'm doing quite well, thanks. Thanks for having me, and may the fourth be with you. Yeah, likewise. I, I got to ask you. I, I, mean, I, I got a ton of questions being a Star Wars geek, but how cool is it to play an X-wing starfighter pilot in the Mandalorian? Oh, it's a dream come true for me. Like honestly, I've been dreaming of this since I was five years old. My dad took my sister and I to see the movie way back when, and uh, yeah, no, when my cup runneth over, it's it's super cool. 
<laughs> so you're a big Star Wars fan yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, again, you know, seeing that movie when I was five left an indelible mark on my, on, you know, my psyche. And Star Wars has been a part of my life ever since then. And I'm a huge fan. I collect toys, um, you know, action figures, uh, replica props. I build them. I cosplay. Uh, all those different things. And then to finally be able to uh, join the galaxy far, far away uh, is just an incredible experience, you know? How did it come about? Did you reach out to them? Did they reach out to you? No. <laughs> it turned out that um, I had a friend, Deborah Chow. She was directing on the, at the, the first season of The Mandalorian. And she's, she's Canadian as well. She's yeah. from Oakville. And uh, we worked together like 25, 26 years ago at the Factory Theater in Toronto. And, um, yeah, I hadn't seen her since. And uh, she jumped in front of me at in 2018 at the Unforgettable Gala in Los Angeles. It was uh, an event to celebrate Asian Americans in um, the media. And uh, she just jumped out of nowhere and said, hey, Paul, you know, congratulations on Kim's Convenience. I've been wanting to get in touch with you. Dave Filoni, who is one of the executive producers on The Mandalorian and one of the showrunners, he's a big fan of Kim's Convenience. And he wants to write something for you. And, uh, yeah, no, I like that. That was absolutely, you know, news that floored me. And, um, so I got a set visit from him. I got to meet John Favreau, Dave Filoni. I got to watch Deb work. And six months later, Lucasfilm called, uh, my agent and said, Hey, is he available? And, um, yeah, I didn't have to audition for the part. They offered me the role and they jumped at it because, how could you not? Wow, that is awesome. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Paul Sun Hyung Lee, Canadian actor appearing, uh, well, right now in The Mandalorian as Captain Carson Teva. And I recently saw that you, as Captain Teva, are getting your own action figure. Oh, <laughs> not quite. Oh, no. Not very close. Uh, yeah, I, I haven't gotten an action figure yet. There's a number of custom figs. That have been created, which is absolutely stupendous. There's some really, really talented fabricators out there. But I am getting, and I was able to announce this, it is a mini bust of my character that's going to be released by a company called Gentle Giant and Diamond Select Toys. And that is being released sometime in the near future. I'm hoping that it will be a uh, San Diego Comic-Con exclusive. Mm. Uh, that's the rumor that I'm hearing. But it won't be available for another few months yet. But you can always check online. But that will be the first sort of officially licensed 3d sort of rendering of my character wow uh there are a couple of little uh uh pins that have been released from uh two years ago the seller celebration but this would be my first actual 3d sort of figure that is wild have you seen it what do you think oh it's it's i i'm blown away again it's it's just like it's all these things when you're a kid you'd kind of dream about and like i got my own like there's a representation of my character in, in mini bust form and the detail is great and they make me look 10 pounds lighter, which makes me even <laughs> happier. Uh, yeah. And it's super cool because I've got a number of mini busts of all the different pilots right now. Like I've got Dave Filoni, who plays Trapper Wolf. He, they sent me a copy of his bust. Another one of Big's Dark Lighter. And I kind of have a connection to that character as well. Um, and so it'd be fun to finally get mine and put them up there with the Pantheon of other X-Wing pilots that I have on display at home. This doesn't happen to uh, people every day. So the question is, how many of these things do you plan to buy? <laughs> oh, man, I, I, as many as I can get my hands on, because <laughs> these are things that uh, I want to be able to gift to people, uh, have as prizes and giveaways. I have a small YouTube channel, and we have trivia contests and, and fun things, right? So I want to sort of spread that, that joy forward and uh, give people a little bit of history 
um, and, and something really neat, you know, like an autographed figure or an autographed bust of somebody who's in Star Wars is is a pretty cool thing to have, I think. Paul Seung-Hyung Lee is a Canadian actor and our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML as we celebrate May the 4th here on GMH. How much more of Captain Teva are we going to see in The Mandalorian? Oh, I hope tons more. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's always, I always say, if they ask me, I will go. Um, it's one of those things that's out of my hand. It's above my pay grade, but it's nice because the progression of the character is such that I'm getting more and more to do every time I go back. And so fingers crossed that they, they like my work enough in season three that they want me back for season four and five and six and however many seasons they have. But we're still waiting to hear. I'm still waiting to hear whether they're going to be renewed for another season. But, um, you know, the one thing I always take is this is an incredible opportunity and ex- incredible experience that no one can ever take away from me. And if it, if I don't get asked back or if they go in a different direction or they do whatever to my character, I can look back with immense pride and uh, fondness and to be able to say, hey, I did it. I made it onto star- a Star Wars show. Um, and so I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm super happy and super grateful. Well, I'm, I, you know, you don't have to hear it from me, but you're knocking it out of the park. The character is awesome. You are just, uh, uh you know, Captain Teva and Paul Sung-Hyung Lee are now synonymous forevermore. Uh, I, I gotta ask you this. Our discussion comes at, at a pretty good time because May is Asian Heritage Month and you're one of several incredible actors along with the likes of Sandra Oh, uh, Simu Liu, uh, and really the list goes on and on who are, you know, wonderful role models for aspiring Asian actors and actresses. What does that feel like for you? Uh, you know, it's an incredible uh, honor, I think. And it's very humbling that you, that you put me up with, with, with such high uh, caliber names like that. And, um, you know, it, this is something, it's, it's a position of responsibility and something that I, I don't take lightly um, because growing up, I didn't have that kind of representation for myself. It was very difficult for me to convince my parents to sort of uh, give me the runway in, in order to explore this, uh, this profession, just because there weren't very many successful stories. You didn't see it uh, out there in, in um, today's mainstream, uh, in mainstream society back then. And so with the advent of all these successful performers and these shows and stuff, I think for immigrant parents, for Asian parents, because they can now see success stories because the younger generation can see there's something really cool to, that they can aspire to and see these success stories that they'll have uh, an easier time to sort of go into and have more of that familial support and it, that that makes the biggest difference it, it is really just giving the opportunity and having the support to follow your dreams uh, and to go off the beaten path because ultimately at the end of the day you know there are some certain tried and true you know traditional uh, professions uh, but there are those of us who, who want to follow our hearts. And I think when you see a success story from somebody who's followed their heart and learned the craft and excelled at it and become successful, that gives you hope. And that's, it's, it's really cool to be able to inspire the next generation of talented artists in front of and behind the screens. Yeah, that is beautiful. How did you manage to convince your parents that, hey, you, you can be a, an actor who earns money and has a career? <laughs> well, it took me. It wasn't until I was my I was in my forties that my parents finally sort of relented <laughs> and relaxed a little bit. Uh, but I think that always comes from the fact that you know your parents love you and they want you to succeed. And a lot of the pushback that you might get is because they're worried that you're going to have to suffer. And I think any parent worth their salt doesn't want salt doesn't want their their children to suffer. They want their lives to be a little bit easier, right? They don't want to see them struggle. 
And I think that's where a lot of the pushback came from with my parents. They were just like, you're going to a field that's very, very difficult. And, um, you know, it was one of those things where they kind of had to let me go because, uh, you know, it, it wasn't like they were actively blocking my way, but they were, you know, they expressed their concerns very vocally at many times. Uh, but it was one of those things where uh, I, I was able to get my own scholarship and money, raise my own money to sort of go to university on my own. So I wasn't dependent on on my parents' purse strings. Um, and so that's kind of hard. Like they can't block you if you're paying for your own way type thing. Um, but it, in the end, I think it was great because they, they sort of took that step back and went, well, this is his life and he has to learn. And if he fails, then he'll learn from that. If he succeeds, then that's great. They're always going to worry. They're always going to love me. And, and that's the one thing I think at the end of the day, that's what families do. And as a parent, you got to learn to just sort of drop that rope and let them let them soar type thing. You're absolutely right. Uh, last one for you. What's next for you? What's coming up uh, down the line? Oh, well, uh, well, I'm at home now. Last year was super, super busy. Uh, which is great. And a lot of things that I shot last year are, are starting to air right now. Mandalorian season three is, has done their run, but it's still available on Disney plus you can watch that. There's another show that I did in the Apple TV series called Jane, which is a, a young audience show, but it's partnered with the Jane Goodall Institute. Um, and it is about environmentalism, conservationism, uh, animal activism. And it's really, really quite wonderful because it, it studies uh, these issues on a global scale and bring it down to a local scale. And the, uh, it, it, so that's just out right now on Apple TV, which is great. They've released the first 10 episodes. I've got a couple of other projects that are coming out that I'm not allowed to talk about. <laughs> and of course, Avatar The Last Airbender, which is a big one from Netflix. Uh, I don't know exactly when they're going to be airing it, uh, but hopefully we'll hear an announcement in June during Netflix's Tadum uh, uh, event. Um, but that's that's the next big, big ticket uh, thing that I can talk about just because um, people have been waiting to see this adaptation of Avatar The Last Airbender on Netflix. Well, we're looking forward to seeing you as Captain Teva and all these other amazing characters that you play. Paul, really appreciate your time today. May the 4th be with you and have an awesome day. Thanks and also with you. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Tavares keeps it going and it's John Tavares behind the net. Coming out in front. John Tavares! They finally caught lightning in the bottle. And the Maple Leafs have broken the 19-year curse. Leafs Nation was jumping for joy after that iconic call by Chris Cuthbert on Sportsnet as the Leafs finally made it in a round two after dispatching the Tampa Bay Lightning in six games. And a couple who was getting married on Saturday, got married on Saturday, uh, held their wedding reception Saturday night and made it extra special, not only for themselves, but for all Maple Leafs fans. They decided to celebrate their nuptials and the Leafs during their reception at a hall in Woodbridge. Let's dive into the story with Vince and Chantel Andreacci, newlyweds who played Game 6 of the Leafs Lightning Series at their wedding reception. Vince, Chantel, good morning. How are you? Good morning. How are you? I'm fantastic. I got to offer, number one, congratulations on getting hitched. Uh, number two, I know you're hours away from taking off on your vacation, so I'd like to offer a special thank you for spending some time with us. Um Maybe if we can start with Chantel, there's no way that my wife would have allowed this on our wedding night. How did you and Vince come to an agreement that you were going to broadcast the game during your reception? 
Well, before we knew the playoff schedule, he always talked about playing the Leafs game, and I was always like, yeah, okay. Um, but then it, when it became a reality, I was just like, all right, can't beat him, join him. So, so that's pretty much how it went down. So, Vince, did you let your guests know beforehand that the game was going to be shown on the big screens in the hall? I, I would say 90% of our guests did not know that we were going to show the game. I think there was a select hardcore diehards that um, would ask a question, and I would let them know that that was going to be the reality, which they were pretty happy about. Um, but, yes, most of them didn't know. And when we turned the games on uh, after we walked in and did our first dance, um, there was a bit of an uproar within the the the, the hall. But a good uproar. They were happy with what was going on. Yeah, of course. Well, great uproar. <laughs> like a sigh of relief. Chantel, what did the staff, when you're when you're describing what you want to do at your reception, what did the staff at the wedding hall think about your idea? I think they're pretty flexible. Yeah, I don't think they were too shocked, were they? Really? Yeah. I. You know what? You know what? I think the reality is is if you if we didn't show it, there'd be. 200 plus people watching it on their phones being secluded. Right. I think the idea of having it on four screens within the hall uh, allowed people to, you know, get together, unite, watch and, you know, enjoy an evening together. Our guests on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Vince and Chantel Andriachi, newlyweds who played game six of the Leafs Lightning series at their wedding reception. And Vince, I would imagine that, you know, your, your your video has gone viral. What kind of reaction have you received? I would hope mostly positive. Yeah, mostly positive. Uh, it's been uh, it's been kind of nice to continue the wedding celebration on social media a little bit. Uh, uh, that, but there were some negative comments, and the negative comments kind of caught me off guard, but not, not nothing that I really paid too much attention to, to be quite honest. Chantel, do you think you may have started a new spring wedding trend? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. But I think I think the key here is it has to be playoff season. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, it's, it's got to be the spring. You can't show a regular season game in, like, November and do this. Exactly. I can't help but think that uh, there's going to be a few more Saturdays that uh, weddings within the GTA are going to be showing the Leaf game. Yeah, I, I would almost guarantee. Now, I want to get your predictions on tonight and the series. Chantel, we'll start with you. Do the Leafs win tonight, and do they win this series? Um, Yes, tonight, and I think they'll win in six. Okay. Vince? 4-1 Leafs tonight. Bet the house on it. <laughs> and they're taking this series in how many games? Um, I originally said five. I'm going to stick to five. Oh, look at you. It'll be four straight victories for the Leafs. Hey, we're all cheering yeah. for the blue and white. And we're all cheering for you as well. Have a great honeymoon. What, what are the plans, by the way? We are uh, flying up Barcelona, doing a week cruise that ends in Rome, and then a week in uh, Italy and a week in Portugal. So, so are you going wa- to be watching the Leafs in Europe? Two in the morning. We'll have a stream going, that's for sure. Well, let's hope uh, there's no uh, triple overtime events, although that might work in your favor if you're starting to watch at two in the morning. Vin Chantel, thanks for the time. Uh, Congratulations on uh, the wedding, and uh, have a great honeymoon as well. Thanks, thanks, for so the, thanks so much. Thanks for the kind words. We appreciate it. That is Vince and Chantel Andriachi, newlyweds who, uh, their video's gone viral. <laughs> they get married, they have their reception at a hall in Woodbridge, and lo and behold, four giant screens roll down each wall. And I'd, I'd imagine some of the guests were like, oh, all right, here come the you know obligatory wedding videos.
Nope, it's Leafs Lightning Game 6, and it turned out, of course, for the Maple Leafs to be a celebratory night from their standpoint as well. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We have a daily feature called Picks, Props, and Predictions, and each and every day I make a pick in the sports betting realm. I offer a proposition, who's going to score a goal or maybe get more points or whatever the sport is, and I offer a prediction as well, including today's prediction that the Jays are going to be sub-500 for the month of March. And these sorts of things are happening on a daily basis with real-life money exchanging hands. And when I say exchanging hands, it's people like you and I with sports betting apps spending money to bet on, well, everything under the sun. It's so much so that during the Stanley Cup playoffs, sports betting is through the roof. It is going bonkers. And it's not too surprising given the success of a couple of Canadian teams like the Maple Leafs and the Oilers who have massive fan bases. We're also seeing big market teams like the Rangers involved. I know they're out, but still a lot of people in New York, millions of people and millions of sports bettors, Uh, eager to spend their hard-earned money. Mike Norain is an associate professor of sports management at Brock University and studies this sort of thing and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Mike, good morning. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. How big of a boost is the industry seeing? Let's just focus in on the Stanley Cup playoffs. When playoff time arrives, uh, is is it exploding? Yeah, when, when playoff time arises in a sport like hockey, which is, you know, by all accounts, still the number one sport in this country, at least when it comes to viewership, uh, when it comes to attention, when it comes to corporate dollars, both men's and women's combined, we should say. But, of course, we're talking about the men's, you know, uh, Stanley Cup finals here. Uh, you know, there's a lot more attention paid towards it. And, uh, you know, you make an excellent point, which is, and we know this from the research, that fans of a team are more inclined to bet on their favorite team. And so, you know, when the Toronto, as the Toronto Maple Leafs and the Edmonton Oilers progress, and, you know, knock on wood, I think right, as of right this second, the Maple Leafs have a 46% chance of moving on to the next round, but still have a, the models are, are weird, but I, I believe the, the Maple Leafs are tied with the Vegas Golden Knights at, at an 18% chance of hoisting Lord Stanley's Cup. You, you, you know, there, there's still going to be interest in this marketplace in Ontario to bet on uh, the Maple Leafs. And there's going to be interest, well, I mean, coast to coast to coast for that matter, because the Leafs are a national entity. And there's going to be interest in Alberta to bet on the Oilers. And so as these teams fare well, you're going to see a lot more interest in wanting to bet on those games. And so it's a perfect segue into, you know, tonight's game. You know, the Leafs are playing the Panthers. And so... Belief fans are going to say, look, not only do I have my fandom, but I feel, again, intuitively, that the Leafs are going to have a nice comeback victory tonight. And so that sort of irrational, perhaps, <laughs> uh, logic leads to more betting behaviors and, and not just intention, but realized action. And what they quickly realize, I would hope, is that when it comes to sports, it's the ultimate reality TV. You have no idea what's going to happen. Absolutely. And, and there's a beautiful quote from, from the old Hollywood movie. Well, I say old Hollywood movie. I, I'm starting to date myself now. But there, there was a great sports movie called Any Given Sunday uh, with Al Pacino, uh, among other major names. Jamie Foxx, ironically, who's doing a lot of influencing for one particular uh, sports betting uh, company. But the quote is, yeah, on any given Sunday, anyone can win. And it's very true 
in any sport uh, at the professional level, but even you know, youth, amateur, uh, doesn't really matter. Adaptive doesn't really matter. But the, the point is, th- this is the nuance of sports betting: is that you know, the, the not even the casual sports fan, but the more intense sports fan, someone who's allegiant, um, who's quote unquote knowledgeable has been following along, knows the stats, knows the players, has been performing their own version of the eye test. I've seen so many X games, and I've seen so many players come through. I know what I know, when the reality is they don't. And so, you know, it's very easy for me to say, look, the modeling says the Maple Leafs are going to win the Stanley Cup. If so facto, I'm going to place a bet on the Maple Leafs to win the Stanley Cup. Another person might say, Mike, that's completely ridiculous. They haven't won in 56 years or, or you know, since 67. Don't be an idiot. So this, this leads us to the motivations behind why folks get into sports gambling. And there's two predominant reasons. And what I'm kind of alluding to is this hedonic sort of in, I'm doing it for enjoyment. Like, again, I, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be very transparent. I'm a Maple Leafs fan. Um, I did live in Ottawa once upon a time, but there's no way I'm watching the Ottawa Senators play the Florida Panthers in a regular season game. But if I put $2 on the game to say, hey, you know what, maybe um, you know, Tim Stutzla will score a goal, it makes that game more interesting. And so there's some more enjoyment derived from that activity. The challenge, though, is the other motivation, which tends to be very central or primary for a lot of uh, gamblers out there is an economic motivation that I can translate my knowledge of the game and the knowledge of the sport into income generation. And so, yeah, I'll bet $2 and I'll make $10 off this bet. And that just makes a lot of sense to me. The problem is, again, uh, and, and I'll use myself as an example because, uh, you know, I, I am a better. Uh, the Maple Leafs' first game on Tuesday, I thought, A, they would win, and B, maybe Austin Matthews might score a goal. And neither of those things happened. And so even though it seemed like a sure thing, and it could be a doubling of my money there as an example, and I'm sure a few other consumers thought that as well, it just goes to show that even when things look like a sure thing, they're not a sure thing at all. Absolutely. Mike, we'll have to leave it there. There's plenty more to chew on on this topic, and we'll have to have you back to do so in, ter- in terms of talking about you know, influencers, uh, a lot of competition, and perhaps some restrictions that should be forthcoming. But we'll leave that to another time, and we'll get you on another date. Appreciate your time this morning. I appreciate it so much. Have a good day. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There's a new Hamilton-based study on aging, which it, it is hoping to help older adults live independently at home and for longer. It's called the Optimal Fitness Study, and it's been developed by Hamilton Health Sciences in partnership with the YMCA of Hamilton, Burlington, Branford, as well as Upper James Physio. And they're looking for people to participate, and the good news is it's free. Pam Edgecombe is a participant in this study, and Dr. George Ioannidis is a deputy director at the Jarris Center for Aging Research at Hamilton Health Sciences. Pam and Dr. George, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. Good morning, Rick. George, we'll start with you. What is the purpose of this study? Give us uh, the 411. Well, I think the, the purpose of the study is to improve older adults' physical health and mobility, strength, mood, and quality of life. I think participants uh, basically will be assigned to one of three groups, usual activity, exercise only, and our deluxe model. The deluxe model includes they're taking vitamin D, 
protein shakes. Uh, they'll have a medica- medication optimization review by a study pharmacist, and, and they'll also be participating in a four-month exercise program that is delivered by the YMC instructors at the YMCs across Hamilton, Burlington, and Brantford. So when does this all begin, and when do you hope to nail down some of the study results to, to help you steer other older adults into the, into the right way of living? A great question. So it's, it's already started. It's our first court has completed, will be completed in, I guess, the next week at Les Chater YMCA. I think the study will be wrapping up in the next year and a half. So probably in the next two years, we'll find out if the, the study actually improved the quality of life of the older adults participating in the study. Pam, let's go to you. I hear that you signed up pretty quickly when you heard about this study. Why was that? Um, I'm a little hard of hearing, so I, <laughs> that's why I have trouble asking this. Um, I heard about it, and uh, a friend had done the Jairus Dance Program, and I uh, highly recommended it. And when it came open, I thought I'd apply and see if I got in, which I did. And there were so many practical ideas through exercising to use in everyday life. I have two artificial hips, and I have no problems following this program. So you say it's working for you so far? Oh, definitely. My balance has improved dramatically. Previously, I had trouble getting dressed in the morning, and now I can do it with no problem. And... um we were taught how important balance is from sitting properly and doing chair exercises to walking correctly with poles and then specific balancing exercises at the bar if support is needed. George, you're getting real-life feedback as we speak. Uh, how is all of this info that you are going to collect uh, potentially going to help older adults live at home longer? Because that's basically the, the basis of the study. Yes, yeah, so that's that's a great question. So... Basically, uh, for older adults have lost energy and strength, so we're trying to improve that. And if they can improve that, and that will help them in the, their day-to-day activities so they can live at home more often, so they can be able to go grocery shop, shopping, uh, cooking, and cleaning around the house so they can live longer in their homes. What are the qualifications? So basically, you have to be 65 years of age and older, and you're experiencing mobility challenges, or you have loss of energy and muscle strength, you may have difficulty climbing stairs, and you've just slowed down. And back to you, Pam. Are you spreading the news to family and friends to say, hey, you got to try this out, you got to sign up for this study? Oh, definitely. I highly recommend this program. It is unbelievable. The instructor was enthusiastic and uh, was really careful with all of our activities. And the Hamilton Health Sciences people were encouraging. Um, I'm so glad I was chosen to take part in this four-month study. I'm going to really miss the participants who I got to know to know during during the exercises, and I really could see the continual pr- improvement of everyone through the four-month study. And I know that 75% of the participants in our class have already signed up for new programs specifically designed for her age group at the Y. 
That is excellent to hear. We're talking about the Optimal Fitness Study that has been developed by Hamilton Health Sciences, and we're speaking with Dr. George Ioannidis, the Deputy Director of the Jarris Center for Aging Research at HHS, and Pam Edgecombe, a participant in this study. Uh, Dr. George, how can people get involved? Because you are looking for more participants. How do they do so, and how many more people do you need? So thank you for asking that question. So if, if you're interested in participating or if your parents or grandparents are interested in participating in the Optimal Fitness Study, you can uh, phone us. Uh, you can call Karen, who's our research coordinator, at 905-521-2100, extension 12437. And we're still looking for about 300 participants. So the, the, there's, we're still recruiting for a lot of older adults. And give us a, a sense of what these participants would do in a day. Uh, for the program? Yeah. Well, the program includes a, a, a warm-up. So it's a, it's a one-hour program at the Y. It's twice a week. And we also have physiotherapists assigned homework, which is one hour a week. So the total uh, exercise component is about three hours per, per week. And at the Y, we have a tailored program developed by the pharmacists in, in, in our study includes warm-ups, strength training, balance training, cardio, so we're using walking poles, which is really safe, uh, flexibility, and then a cool-down and, and deep breathing activities. Well, sounds like there's a lot there, and the participants, like Pam, are getting a lot out of it. So Dr. George Ioannidis and Pam Edgecombe, thanks for joining us today. Good luck with this study. We'll certainly follow up in about a year and Thank a half to see so how it much. all went. Thank you very much, Rick. Have a great day. That is Pam Edgecombe, a participant in this optimal fitness study, and Dr. George Ioannidis, a deputy director of the Jarris Center for Aging Research at HHS. More details online at hamiltonhealthsciences.ca. And uh, listen, if you are 65 and older and you're having a tough time at home with mobility challenges, mobility issues, you want to get a little healthier, as well, sign up for the study or maybe recommend someone who you think could uh, fit the bill. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Our next guest began busking in downtown Hamilton 25 years ago. And after touring the world, this Burlington man is now bringing his one-man mime show back home. It's called Searching for Marceau. And it's going to be done at the Royal Botanical Gardens tomorrow and Saturday. Joining us now is Trevor Kopp, the Burlington-based mime, who is the star of Searching for Marceau. Trevor, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Doing well. How are you? I'm not too bad. How did you ever start to become a mime? How did this all uh, develop? It mystifies me just (laughs) as much as anyone. Um, um, It was funny because I was at high school, and I'm doing the high school theater thing. And I'm acting and I'm dancing. And for me, both of those things was missing something. I loved storytelling, which I missed when I was dancing. And, and I didn't love my voice. I loved movement, which I missed when I was acting. And so I got my hands in a VHS tape, that's how old I am, <laughs> of, a, of, a, of just a mime instructional video. And I watched this video and I just kept, I didn't stop. But isn't it harder to perform without voice, or did, did you find it that way at the start and then obviously developed your skills? Uh, no, no. For me, I've always been, I have not been comfortable with my voice, unlike yourself, obviously, who, uh, you know, with the, with the great voice you got there, 
I've never been comfortable speaking. I've never been a chatty guy. Hmm. And, uh, but when I move, I just feel at home with myself. And I've always been like that. What was the, because no one's an expert right away when they're trying something new. What was <laughs> the most difficult thing for you to learn becoming a mime? Relaxing. Relaxing was the hardest part. I would get overwhelmed by just, you know, people watching you, the energy of what you're doing. You've got all this, these people around, and that would translate to tension for me right. when I was growing up. And it took me a long time to sort of be in the moment, to be, to be responding to someone in front of me, to get on stage with all that energy and attention firing at you, and to be able to refocus that, something to take something back like that and put it back calmly. That took a long time. Was that one particular moment, or was that just a metamorphosis that you finally got to a place where you're like, all right, now I'm, I'm, I'm in character, so to speak? Well, do we ever get there? Like, as you say that, I guess 20-year-old me would agree, but right now in my life, I'm always going, okay, what's next? What's the next goal? Like, I was, I was busking, you know, literally on the streets of Hamilton for, for years, lots of buskering work, doing this forever, but ultimately, went to went to school because I thought, like, is that it? Is that the limit of what this is? Because when people think about mime, right, they think about somebody who's stuck in a box, stuck in a park, stuck in the 70s. It's very limited. And I'm looking at this going, there's got to be more than just how to make a box and how to, how to pull a rope. There's got to be more going on. And what I, what I really fell in love with was the long-form storytelling aspect of mime. The way you could tell complete ideas and legends and that kind of thing. And that's that's really where I enjoy the work the most. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Trevor Kopp, Burlington-based mime and star of Searching for Marceau, which is going to be held at the Royal Botanical Gardens tomorrow and Saturday. And you mentioned, you know, when people think of the mine, and yeah, they do have that kind of mindscape of, hey, here's, here's a guy or a girl trying to get out of, uh, you know, the, the prototypical box. Um, yeah. Searching for Marceau, uh, I'm going to guess, is about the OG, Marcel Marceau. It, uh, it is. It is. It's, it's interesting. Um, first of all, um, it, the show is tonight. Oh, uh, okay. Tonight and Friday. There's no show Saturday. Just throw, throw that out there. But, um, yeah, the show is about what it's about. It's about the doubling uh, for this character that, that, that I've invented. It's this character that finds all this what's missing in their own father at home. And then imagines that Marcel Marceau, across the ocean, who's world famous, he's the perfect father. This is the guy who's got it all together. So dreams of meeting this other father in the sky while his own father is sort of in his life and then they cannot seem to communicate with each other. So that's the arc it moves through. I, I, it, it's, it ironically talks about silence, the silence in a, in a family when communication is impossible, and then putting that right beside the mime work. What I found was, I have worked my career in theater, in you know, full text-based theater and Shakespeare and all kinds of great stuff. But I found that when I went to mime, I, I didn't know how to present that to an audience today. If I did just straight mime, no one knew what to do. So I, I developed this as a way of moving back and forth between storytelling and mime. And it sort of landed on a great combination for us. Is there any additional narration or explanation of what is about to occur? Or do people yeah. kind of know what's going on? Yeah, well, it's, it's just over half of it is text. So I'm fully telling you the story of what's happening. And then it moves into mime sequences and back and forth. I found that was a, that was a really effective way of, of making sure that the story was clearly told. Yeah, that's a fascinating way to do it. Uh, so yeah. t- tonight and uh, and tomorrow is yeah. when the show happens at the Royal Botanical Gardens. How can people get tickets to this event? 
Uh, if you look through the RBG website, they've got them all there. You can also just show up at the door. The show's going to happen at 7.30 in either case. What kind of response do you get from audiences? You know, everybody says to me, I've never seen that before. And of course, I'm trying to tell them, it's okay, nobody has seen it before <laughs> in, in this area. You know, it's not just you. No one's seen this stuff before. The thing that I love is that in mime, when it's working well, when it's working the way it should work, it's not about the illusion. It's not about the fact that all of a sudden you can see a wall. It's about the fact that I'm telling you a story about what's happening, and you're discovering the story with me as we go. And you are co-creating with me. With my hands, I'm out there suggesting that I have a bow and I'm firing an arrow. But there's this incredible moment that happens when you understand you see the bow, you see the air, you see the tree that are leaning in. The moment that we both can just see it and feel it is very, very powerful. And that's what you'll never get in film. When you watch a film, if they want to represent New York City, they just show you New York City and you're done. And you as an audience member, you just were handed it to you. You didn't have to use your imagination. Whereas I'll suggest New York City. I'll suggest that I'm swimming in the ocean. And your mind filling in the skyline and filling in the water of the ocean, that's what's interesting to watch. And that's what you can't get on TV. Sounds like it's going to be a brilliant performance tonight, tomorrow, RBG. Uh, Trevor, good luck with it. And uh, we'll talk to you down the road, I'm sure. Thanks very much. Trevor, Trevor Cop, Burlington-based mime and the star of Searching for Marceau. Check it out at the RBG. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode and make sure you rate and review. 911 on a new night. Thursday, March 14th on Global. Stream on Stack TV.